Well, good morning. Uh, if you don't know me, I'm Jacob. Uh, I'm the ministry apprentice here at Grace. If you don't know me, please come and say hello to me afterwards. Uh, hello to all those on Zoom as well. Uh, as Dom said, we're back in John. Uh, we're con continuing our series in John's Gospel. Uh, we got to chapter eight. Um, if you can remember that far back, it was quite a few months ago. Um, and if you find it helpful, if you have the order of service, there's some headings in there which you might, which I'll reference uh, as I go. But before I begin, why don't I pray um, and turn to God as we turn to these words? So let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, creator of light and love, we recognize that without your help, we are in the dark about you. We ask that you will give us eyes to see you this morning, clear heads to understand, and hearts that respond rightly to who you are. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're looking at an event from John's account of Jesus's life found in John's gospel. Uh, John was an eyewitness, a close follower of Jesus. And in his gospel, he records seven signs for us. These are seven acts of supernatural power in Jesus's life. These aren't just miracles. They are signs that signal to us who Jesus is. And he also says at the end of his gospel that Jesus did a lot more than he could even record. And John has this connection running throughout his book between the evidence and how that points to belief and life. So he's saying that here are some signs so that you can believe who Jesus is. Because Jesus said, if you believe in him, he will give you eternal life. So by trusting in Jesus, we get this gift of life, knowing God now that can go on forever beyond the grave after we die. Now here in John chapter nine, we see the sixth of John's, uh, of the seven signs, of Jesus' seven signs. We meet this man who's never been able to physically see because he's blind. He's been in darkness. But even though the sign is all about physical blindness, the whole chapter isn't really about physical blindness at all. And in this passage, there are a couple of things that I want to talk about. And one of the first is the disciples' question. So the first is the confusion of the disciples. And if you have the order of service, that's maybe the first heading, if something you'd like to write down if you don't. So the confusion of the disciples. Uh, the disciples were Jesus, are Jesus' followers. They see this blind man begging, and they turn to Jesus and ask in uh, verse 2, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Sin is the Bible's word for our rejection of God. It's not just the bad things we do. It might be that there are good things we do, but we don't do them for God. And as we turn in our hearts away from God, that's where we're sinning. And here, the disciples are making a connection between suffering and sin, connecting them, connecting a particular instance of suffering to, a, to the specific sin that caused it. Now, why would they think that? The Bible makes it clear for us that the reason there is suffering in our world is because there is sin in the world. We don't have to look far to see the brokenness. And we might even think, how can there be a good God if things are this broken? And Jesus' answer is this. Because sin came into our world, and as soon as that first sinful act had been committed by the first human beings, we got the world we deserve. Suffering came into our world. So that we, when we see bad things about us happening, it is a reminder to us that something has gone really wrong between us and God, and we need someone to put it right. So the connection between sin and suffering is genuinely true, 
It's true in a general across the world, but it's not specifically true. And the disciples' mistake here is to connect that specific example of suffering, so the man's blindness, with a specific sin. Who said that this man will be born blind? We might think that we wouldn't be so crass in the 21st century Scotland as to think of something so unkind or so superstitious. But we do do a similar kind of thinking. Maybe not about sickness, maybe about other things. It's behind the saying, what goes around comes around. The idea that people essentially get what they deserve in life. If you've ever seen the movie Sound of Music, perhaps not a film you've expected me to have watched, but I have a weird soft spot for musicals. Um, when Maria and the captain get together, it's a great moment. And they sing this song that kind of oozes this mentality. They found each other, they've fallen in love, and they're happy and they sing. Nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. If we think like that, if we think what goes around comes around in life, when we see someone living the good life, we think they must have earned it. And if someone's in chaos, we think, well, what have they done wrong? They're to blame. They must deserve it. But this isn't just unhelpful. It leads to a troubling mentality in us. That is, if things are going well, it's because you made the right calls. And it becomes easy to fall, fall into pride and self, selfishness because you think you deserved it. You don't have to share it with anyone. And if someone else doesn't have this, that's their responsible. They're responsible for that. So you lack compassion for others. You think that it's their fault. It's not my problem. And if things are going badly for you in society when people around you think like this, then you don't just have to endure the suffering that you're going through. You have a lack of sympathy from others and often a whole pile of shame added on top because it must have been your fault. You must have brought it on yourself. And so what Jesus says here in verse three is of incredible comfort. It's been, inc it's been an, of incredible comfort to many people since Jesus uh, said it, not just to this man. It says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There might well be situations in our life where we are suffering and have to admit that it's our own fault. That's the reason I'm going through this now is because of something I did. But more often, when we encounter suffering, this is a really important message from Jesus we need to hear. It's so incredibly comforting that there is no shame in the suffering that I'm going through. That it's not my fault that this is happening. And more than that, that if we'll turn to God in our suffering, what was true for this man in John chapter 9 is true for us. That when there is suffering in our lives, God can do something in us that displays his goodness in his work. It might not be physical hearing, the feeling, has this happened to this man? But for us, it could be some other kind of transformation in us. Some good work that God works in us and through us that displays his goodness and love as he helps us in our suffering. I was reading this week uh, when I was preparing about our the uh, story of how a, Christ, uh, a woman have how her personal story of coming to Jesus as a teenager. She said she met God here in these words of Jesus. Uh, she had a disability. She uh, struggled to walk. And she described how school, she was mocked and bullied. And she wouldn't tell her parents about it when she got home. 
of how she was pushed over on the way home by people as they bullied her. If there was a God, she was raging at him. And then she heard these words, verse 3 again. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. There she encountered God, who has a purpose for her and a future for her, because he is able and willing to display his good work in the life that she has entrusted to him. In coming to Jesus, we aren't met with condemnation and a, well, you bought this on yourself. Instead, we are met with a God who uses our lives and circumstances to glorify himself. But how do we know that God could do that? That he could display a good work in our lives? And this takes us to our second point, the testimony of the blind man. So we've had the question of the disciples. And now we have the testimony of the blind man. In verse 6, Jesus makes mud wet with his saliva, and he puts it on the man's eyes, as if to emphasize the blindness, to draw attention to what he's about to do. And apart from that, we don't really know why Jesus did it, but it's what he did. And then John tells us Jesus sent him to wash in a specific pool, the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So the blind man was sent to a pool called sent by the one who himself sent was sent by God into this world. And as the dirt comes away from his eyes for the first and for the first time in his life, he can see. The whole event is summarized perfectly over the page in verse 30, 32. If you just look there, he says, nobody has ever heard of the opening the eyes of a blind of a man born blind. Of course not. The only way for this to happen is if there is a God who has stepped into our world in the person of Jesus from beyond our universe. It is a long chapter and as Joanne read it for us, there are witnesses after witnesses to examine and cross-examine the man's neighbors, the man's parents, the man himself. It's like a courtroom drama. And as time goes on, we find that the once blind man starts to interpret the sign correctly. So in verse 12, he says he doesn't know anything about the man who did it. He doesn't know where he is. But then in verse 17, the religious leaders interrogate him and they say, uh, and that's the Pharisees who are the relig religious leaders. And they say, what have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. He's, he's working it out. And then in verse 25, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. And then if you look at verse 38, the man says, as Jesus found him, he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And as we come to the end of this chapter, the spotlight turns to the religious leaders, the Pharisees. What will they do with the testimony of this man born blind? What will it reveal about them? And the answer isn't great for them. It reveals that they are spiritually blind. We're used to this picture, aren't we, of blindness and seeing like that in other areas of life. Here's an example of such. Jeremy Clarkson was publicly known for being a bit of a climate change denier pouring scorn on eco-warriors, driving big, heavy, inefficient cars unashamedly. He once said this, I have a disregard for the environment. I think the world can look after itself and we should enjoy it as best we can. And then he went on a boat trip on one of his TV shows in Vietnam and he got to a lake that had dried up so he couldn't get through it. And he said it changed his mind about climate change. Had the evidence, the available evidence, significantly changed for Jeremy Clarkson? Not really. 
It's just that he had an experience that suddenly made it all sink in for him. Uh, another example from the world of sport, the Australian cricket captain, Tim Payne, was saying just how as an elite cricketer, an elite sportsman, his world was about sport. But the Australian bushfires that were happening last year were going on while they were trying to play cricket, which really opened his eyes to what's really going on in the world, what really matters. He was blind. He was blinded by the focus in his life on sport. And now he can see more clearly what's going on. That's the kind of idea that the issue that John chapter 9 is confronts us with. Could we have the same kind of blindness ourselves? So let's pick things up in verse 28 as the Pharisees respond to the blind man's testimony. They hurl insults at him and they say, are you this fellow, this word's disciple? It's not fellow, it's not really a word I would use, but maybe this guy's disciple would maybe be how we phrased it. We're disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this guy, this, guy, this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. But the man says, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. It's quite a challenge. And what is the Pharisees' response to this challenge? We'll look at verse 34. To this, replied, to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Their worldview is the same as what the disciples had before verse 3. That if you were born blind, there must have been a sin that caused it. And in saying this, they are admitting that the miracle took place. But their response is to banish the man, to throw away the arrogance. So why did they react like this? Well, here's our, and this comes us on to our third point. We've had the disciples' questions, the blind man's testimony. And now we're going to spend some time on the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. The spiritual blindness of the Pharisees. Why are they blind? Well, it's because they've already made up their minds about Jesus. That's the key. And we see that in the question they asked the man's parents. I'm jumping around a bit, but if you look at verse 22 as they interrogate the parents, they tell them to go and ask their son themselves. And in verse 22, they see that they said this because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who had acknowledged that Jesus was Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. The Pharisees have committed themselves already. They can't back down. They've made their minds up. They are not going to accept that Jesus is the Messiah. That he's the one that scriptures promised. Who would come into our world from God to rescue us. They've already decided anyone who says that about Jesus will be thrown out. And this makes it a culpable blindness. It's a blindness that is their fault. Uh, a few years ago, the journalist Margaret Heiferman, Heiferman, probably not pronouncing that right, uh, wrote, the book, uh, wrote a book called Willful Blindness. Uh, you might have read it if you are uh, better well-read than I am. Um, I only found it when I was looking up uh, for the sermon. She was explaining why it is in our world that there is a phenomenon that crimes sometimes go unnoticed. Even when you look back, you see the things that were happening right in front of people's faces. Harvey Weinstein situation, the Me Too campaign. People look back and can see it. Or in the case of Jimmy Savile, people came forward and were ignored. Why were they ignored? After the event, people look back and say, well, it's obvious now. There were all these warning signs. Why did people not act on it? 
And what Heiferman says there's a deep psychological problem in these situations when we deeply don't want something to be true. We bias ourselves against the evidence as facts, as, as facts are presented to us. She said that it happens in the science world as well, where you'll find that there's this new medical research that reveals that something that doctors have been doing is wrong and it gets covered up for years. Often because there's a subconscious reluctance that's so deep to admit that they want the way they've been doing this thing to be right, but it's actually wrong. And so we're more skeptical than, we're ought to, than we ought to be. Now, John shows this kind of willful blindness at play in the religious leaders. It's a choice that they've made to stick with their position despite and in face of the evidence. But why were they so determined to reject Jesus? Well, partly because the Pharisees were blind to their own sin. They were proud. They were very proud. And Jesus' teaching offended them. What Jesus says about the human condition is very confronting. It's especially confronting if you think that you're a good person, an enlightened person, like the Pharisees thought. But Jesus said that by our own good works and by our own religious works, we cannot save ourselves from sin. That the church leader or the bishop or whoever it might be needs a savior just as much as the imprisoned convict. The Pharisees here, as religious people, thought that sin was something other people did, not them. They were far too good for that. They thought they were spiritually enlightened. But here we see in that behind their reaction to the blind man in verse 34, when they say that you are steeped in sin at birth, how dare you lecture it to us? What are they assuming? You, you are steeped in sin at birth. You, not me, is a self-righteous, is a blindness to their own need for a rescuer. And that's why they're set against Jesus, no matter how strong the evidence is. So how do we learn from them? Well, first, John wants us to do is to understand that as a reason why people would reject Jesus, that this is a reason why people would reject Jesus. So we're not put off drawing the conclusion that Jesus is who we claim to be when other people around us don't believe him. When we decide that Jesus is the son of God and other people say that he's not. Please let me encourage you to look at Jesus and look at the evidence about him and where it leads. Never be put off by what, when seemingly smart, sensible people around you don't do the same. It also may not actually be about evidence. It's often not. It could, it could be about spiritual blindness. But a question to ask ourselves is, could I fall into the same kind of trap? Have I become closed-minded to the evidence about Jesus? Because I think it's striking when you look at the Pharisees here, how much you see of that in our culture, of people rejecting Jesus in the same kind of ways around us. Maybe you see that among your classmates at school or in university, your colleagues at work, or even your family and your friends. People have already made their mind up. They've made their mind up about Jesus without really looking at the evidence properly. And then perhaps they reject him even in the face of evidence. I remember having a good chat with someone who was doing a theology degree at university. He'd come along to a kind of church question meal uh, with someone, but he was adamantly not a Christian. And I asked him, he'd done three or four years at this point of his theology degree. And I said, what do you make of this evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? Because the thing that persuaded me to be a Christian is the historical evidence that I find so compelling, that Jesus rose from the dead after he died and that you've seen alive again. The tomb was empty. And his answer, even after all that learning and 
that theology degree, his response was, Jacob, Jesus didn't rise from the dead because people don't rise from the dead. So you see what's going on here. You see what's going on there. He's ruling out the evidence because it doesn't agree with his conclusion. He's already made up his mind. And we see it in the Pharisees. Their problem here is they are blind to their own sin. They were too convinced they were spiritually enlightened. That deep down conviction is, uh, conviction is confronted by Jesus there. That G when Jesus taught them that their eyes needed to be open. And again, don't we see that all around us today when it comes to our nation and the people around us? And we think of the Christian faith when our society hears the claim that we are all sinners and we need a savior. How do people react to that label in our society? Well, outrage, disdain, mockery. We think we're the enlightened ones now in the 21st century Scotland. We've arrived. How dare this first century Jesus lecture us? How dare Jesus suggest that on my own, I'm spiritually helpless? We've confronted, we're confronted, aren't we? We don't like that about the people around us. So then the challenge for each of us from chapter nine is about humility, isn't it? Teachability. Would we have the, the humility to accept the possibility that without God's help, I'm spiritually blind? It's a, ski, it's a key step towards knowing God, of course. You might feel sincerely, you might feel, you might sincerely feel that you do want to look at more evidence and that's great. We can talk about evidence. We can go for coffee and I'll happily chat about it. But when it comes to who God is and how we know him, what we're seeing in John chapter nine here is spiritual blindness is a real problem. And it's made worse because one of the problems with spiritual blindness is that you can't see it. Jesus said to the Pharisees in verse 41, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim to see, your guilt remains. It's the problem is that spiritual blindness is a problem so big, you can't see it. And if you don't know you've got a problem, you don't know you need help. The physically blind man knew he was blind. He knew he needed help. The spiritually blind have not recognized the problem. But if we have the humility to admit that we need our need for help, to see the truth about God, we can get that help. And maybe you need to hear that if you've been a Christian for many years. And we need to acknowledge that one of the key places we need to go is to recognize that if I need help, I need to go to God. I go to God, I turn to him, and he will take away my blindness. And that's the great news of John chapter 9. If you look at this, verse 39, Jesus said to the man who was blind, you can now see, for judgment I've come into this world, so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And those who think... And those they can see spiritually, the blindness will be exposed as they come to Jesus, but the blind will be able to be will be able to see. Jesus could give this blind man sight because he knew he was blind. And in verse five, he says this. He said to the disciples, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. He can give us light in the darkness. There's a letter in the New Testament uh, from the Apostle Paul, one of the early Christian leaders. And he says in 2 Corinthians 4, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. He said that it is God who can give light and he has opened our eyes spiritually so that when we come to Jesus and ask him for sight, 
God can enlighten our hearts so that when we see Jesus Christ, we see him for who he really is. All of God's brilliance is on display in him. And Jesus stands ready to offer us that sight. I wonder what you think of in verse 35, when Jesus has heard that they'd thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? This is a man thrown out from his religious community. And Jesus pursues him, just as I believe he pursues people like you and me today. He stands outside with the rejected, and ultimately he gets rejected himself, to the point of death on the cross. He endures such darkness so he can offer a spiritual light. It was immensely costly for him to seek us out, but he does that because he loves us. And this has been my experience. Some years ago, uh, I did a Bible study at an SU camp for people who wanted to know a little bit more about Christian faith, about Jesus. I thought I was looking in at Jesus, but looking back, it was as though one day God opened my eyes to who Jesus is. It was as though up to that point, I'd only been seeing him black and white. And since then, I can see things in color. Knowing God, knowing his love, knowing who I am and knowing who I belong to, all because of his kindness. So what would it look like to ask Jesus yourself for spiritual sight? Well, it might be a prayer, admitting before Jesus your own unbelief today and ask him, Jesus, if you were there, would you open my eyes? I want to see you. And as well as praying, you might be coming back to church Sunday by Sunday as we ask for God's help and as we open up the Bible to see Jesus more clearly and to see ourselves and his world and his light. And if you're new to church, if you're watching on Zoom for the first time, you could get in contact with someone here at Grace, me or Dom or Susie, if you'd like to find out more. That would be fantastic. We'd love to. This passage doesn't just tell us the story of Jesus restoring a man's sight. It reveals something of God's character as a God who brings glory out of struggle and something of humanity trapped in spiritual blindness. And the good news is there's no shame to be blind. In the eyes of faith, blindness is a virtue. Jesus' only words of condemnation were to those who claim to see. What stands in the way of knowing God's love is not blindness, but self-deception. When you think that you're strong, when you think that you're righteous, when you think that you have sufficient faith and understanding to make it on your own, that is when you're sure to come up short. It's only, as when, you're, it's only when you're willing to fall on your knees and rely on the mercies of God will you ever know the peace of God's grace and love. Here's the bottom line. If you're willing to confess your blindness, your lack of faith and understanding, your dependence on the mercies of God, God will open your eyes and show you the way. Uh, Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look to Jesus, whatever situation or circumstance you face, and he will help you know what to do, what to say, and how to respond so as to experience the fullness of life and the joy of his salvation. Uh, let me pray to close. Um, so let me pray. The man answered, one thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Gracious and loving heavenly father and mighty God, we thank you that Jesus gives sight to the blind. We come before you in humility, accepting that like the man born blind, here, we need help to see. We need your help to see you and to see ourselves in truth. 
And Lord, we want to see, open our eyes, we pray, shine light into our hearts that we might know you as we see your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We ask in your mercy because of your great love for us. In Jesus' name, amen.